The one in the boat with them is the one who made the water. The one in the boat with them is not just the great teacher that they've been listening to, is not just the amazing healer. The one in the boat with them is the one who rightly deserves their worship. He is the strong man. Remember, that's another theme of Mark. He's the strong man, the true strong man who has returned to oust the false strong man, the false ruler, the false king. The true king is back to reclaim his kingdom. And this is what he's doing. He's standing up to say, the true strong man is here. I will speak to my creation. I will tell my creation, which metaphorically represents the rule of evil and the chaos of evil. I will tell it to shut up and stay shut up. And that's what Jesus does. But notice the word that Mark uses. He awoke and rebuked the wind. Now, Jesus uses, or I'm sorry, Mark uses that word rebuke like all the words that the writers of Scripture use. He uses it with care. But this word rebuke, it's the standard word for rebuke, to issue forth a correction, a rebuke, a, a sharp rebuke. Jesus rebukes the wind as though the wind has done something wrong. Isn't that interesting? As though the wind was in the wrong. And wind, the wind doesn't have morality, does it? The wind doesn't have a soul. The wind can't do right and wrong. The wind is is molecules in the air being moved around, subject to the forces of atmospheric conditions and whatnot. So why does Jesus rebuke the wind as though the wind has done something wrong? Because in a sense, the wind has done something wrong. Because Jesus is the strong man who is here to reclaim his kingdom. And a big part of his kingdom is the creation that we are told has now been subjected to the futility of the fallenness of man. Because of our sinfulness, we have cast all of creation into the state of fallenness. In Romans 8, we read that the creation groans from the presence of sin, from the curse of sin upon it. And so in a real sense, Jesus is rebuking the wind. Because you know what? The wind was never supposed to terrify man. The storm was never supposed to frighten man. And so Jesus, in a sense, is setting everything right again. Jesus as the second Adam. You can look at at your notes there from Romans chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians 15 that talk about the second Adam who has come to set right what the first Adam set wrong. And so Jesus has come to set those things right. Jesus as the perfect man is here to do what we were intended to do all along. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that God intended for man to go around rebuking the wind and calming storms and healing diseases. That's not what God intended to do. Instead, God intended for man to never be subjected to storms to never be subjected to illnesses and leprosy and, of course, demon possession. And so Jesus, the divine, is setting back to normal how things should have been all along. Man should have never been subjected to storms and winds and waves. Man should have never been subjected to disease and illnesses and blindness and deafness and leprosy. And Jesus is setting all that back straight. Jesus, Jesus... 
If you get this into your, into your soul, this will help you to understand the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was not and is not a superhuman. Jesus is not a human that's above what humans are supposed to be. Jesus is the normal man. Get that into your, into your soul. Jesus is the normal man. We are the abnormal ones. Sin has made us abnormal. Jesus is the normal one. The normal one who has control over the creation. The normal one who perfectly trusts his father. That's normal humanity. We are the abnormal ones. We're the subnormal ones because sin has made us subnormal. Jesus is the perfect human, this true strong man who is here to rebuke the storm. But then notice also the storm is not all that Jesus rebukes. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, that's in the imperfect, so uh, he, he spoke to the sea and kept on speaking to the sea, peace, be still and stay still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm, the second great, the greatness of the calm. Verse 40, and he said to them, now turning to the disciples, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See there, once again, the contrast between fear and faith. He said to them, why are you so afraid and have you still no faith? So Jesus rebukes the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Literally, the word that Jesus uses there that Mark records for us is not the word for for afraid or fear. It's the word for cowardly. So literally, Jesus says, why are you such cowards? Why are you acting so cowardly? Why are you playing the coward? Have you still no faith? This is a rebuke, not the sharpest of rebukes, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. And Jesus is rebuking their lack or their weakness or their absence of faith because faith is the opposite of fear and their fear shows their lack of faith. Jesus never overlooked unbelief. Jesus never coddled unbelief. Unbelief was the thing that Jesus would most quickly and most decisively rebuke. Unbelief was the thing that Jesus would single out the most and he singles it out here and he rebukes them for their sinful fear, which is evidence of their lack of belief. I believe that Mark is writing this for the readers of the church in Rome. Remember, he was writing this to Roman Christians and He's giving them this account in hopes that they will take this account to heart because I believe that possibly the Christians in Rome were maybe like the Christians in the book of Hebrews that were teetering on the brink of fearfulness. They are living at a time in which persecution is ramping up. And Mark is concerned that they will fall into fearfulness. And so he's saying to this, he's giving them this account so that they will take this to heart Be not afraid. Don't play the coward. Don't act like the coward. Get rid of your sinful fear and only believe. So all of us have sinful fear. If we are human, we have sinful fear. Every Christian, every believer has sinful fear. The question is, what are we sinfully fearing? What are you sinfully fearing in your life? Because all of us are sinfully fearing something. Because Jesus says to us, There's only one fear that the Christian is to have, and that's the Lord their God. And besides the Lord, we are to fear nothing else. 
God takes it as an affront to Himself when we fear, for example, men. Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus, or God says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are fearing men and what men can do to you? I'm the Lord. So God takes it as a personal affront when His people, when His children fear other things. So all of us have sinful fears. The question is, what are you sinfully fearing? We are coming out of a time of a couple of years in which there have been a lot of sinful fears among God's people. This pandemic, the COVID and everything. Now, there are certainly some legitimate concerns, but there's also certainly a lot of sinful fear that's been taking place among God's people for the last couple of years. Sinfully fearing what creation can do to us, sinfully fearing what can happen to our bodies, when God says to us, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? What about anything else in our life? There, there are so many things that we sinfully fear. And I don't, I'm not passing judgment on anyone. Everyone has their own situation, their own circumstance. I'm not passing judgment on anyone. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm inviting you to do what Scripture invites you to do all the time, which is judge yourself. Look to your own heart, your own life, and ask yourself, what am I sinfully fearing? What am I fearing that if Jesus were here in the room, He would say to me, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Why are you afraid of that? So perhaps we should all imagine Jesus in the room with us, asking us that question. Why are you afraid? Did I not create you? Did I not die for you? Did I not shed my blood for you? Did I not rise for you? Why are you afraid of what people can do to you? Why are you afraid of what people can take away from you? Why are you subject to what other people can give you? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So he rebukes the disciples' unbelief. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a, and here's the third great, a great fear, a mega fear. Literally, Mark says, they feared with a mega fear. So their fear, the disciples' fear of their own death pales in comparison to their fear of who's in the boat with them. And that may be the most important takeaway of the passage. Is they have a right and correct fear of the one in the boat with them that casts a shadow upon their fear of their own death. Imagine that. Their own death, their own impending death was less frightening to them than the revelation of who is now in the boat with them. That's why they're on the water. And you see, Jesus couldn't have taught them that in parables. Jesus couldn't have told them a parable and showed them that. This was something they had to learn on the boat in the storm with Jesus in the boat with them. The ones on the inside, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom. To those on the outside, everything's in parables. But to the ones on the inside, to you is given the secrets of the kingdom. And this is the greatest secret. The one in the boat with them is the one who made the water. The one in the boat with them 
is not just the great teacher that they've been listening to. It's not just the amazing healer that they've been amazed with, the, the miracle worker, the one with such profound teachings, the one in the boat with them is the one who rightly deserves their worship. The one in the boat with them is the one who knew them before they were born. The one in the boat with them is the one who made every molecule of their body and sustains every molecule of their body. And so this is the consistent and the right reaction that mankind always has when it's in the presence of deity. The majestic holiness of God is something that we have largely lost sight of today. The church in the Western culture, we love Jesus as the great teacher. We love Jesus as the healer. We love Jesus as the Son of God. But the awestruck holiness of God, the majestic magnificence of the one whom we should rightly fall on our face before, that's what the disciples had to be taken into the storm to see. They couldn't see that on the shore. They couldn't see that in the safety of the home in which Jesus would teach them. They couldn't see that on the, the slope of the, the, on the side of the shore as Jesus was teaching in parables. They had to see that in the danger of the storm. They had to see that Jesus is greater than any storm. But notice that to the disciples, Jesus is still a stranger. And they were filled with a great fear. Literally, they feared with a mega fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this? Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey Him. That's the theme of Mark's Gospel. The theme of Mark's Gospel is, Who is this man, Jesus? This began from the very first verse, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Ten verses later, God declares from heaven, this is my beloved son. And then the theme continues from there. Who is this man? Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 27. What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits. Chapter 2, verse 7. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Chapter 6 and verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And then chapter 8, verse 29. We're familiar with this. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, the high priests say to him, Are you the Christ, the chosen one, the son of the blessed? And then, of course, the culmination, the climax of the entire gospel, Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, the the gospel written to the Romans, where the climax is the Roman of Romans, the centurion, the Roman of all Romans, saying, Surely this man was the son of God. But to the disciples, this man in the boat, they thought they knew him. But did we really know him? Who is this man? For those on the inside to truly know Jesus, they must go through the storm with him in the boat. The storm is not just about Jesus delivering them from danger. The storm is about God lovingly and graciously taking them into a place the only place in which they can come to an understanding of the fullness of who this man really is. The majestic holiness of God and the fear of who is it with them in the boat. You know, this isn't the only time 
that Jesus will do something magnificent and those who see it will be filled with fear. If we were to flip forward to the end of the gospel, the very last verse of what Mark writes in in chapter 6 and verse 8, they went out and they fled from the tomb after realizing that Jesus is now raised and they were trembling and astonishment had seized them. So this fear, this isn't the last time that we'll see this. But those on the inside have known Jesus, as we said, as a powerful teacher, as a powerful healer. But now they must know Him as the sovereign creator and the rightful object of their worship. So lastly, let's just draw just a couple of final observations. And the first one is this. The passage, this recounts an actual real story. Jesus really went on the water. There really was this storm. He really did miraculously calm the storm. But at the same time, the story also has a metaphorical application. This passage is about the Lord who will calm the storms of our life. And it really is about how Jesus has sovereign control of our external circumstances, all of our external circumstances. Jesus has sovereign control because Jesus stands up and He says, Peace and be still, speaking to the storm. But speaking to the storm, the peace that He speaks is really the peace that the disciples really need. Because you see, the disciples, their biggest need is not for the storm to be calmed. The biggest need is not for the the water to stop coming into the boat. The biggest need that the disciples have is to have peace in the midst of their storm. Don't misunderstand the story to mean that whenever we have storms in our life, we cry out to God and He immediately calms them. That's not what the story is about. The story is about what's far more important than the calmness. The story is about having peace in the storm because that's what you really want. That's really your greatest desire. Do you realize that about your own heart? That what you really want is not for God to resolve all your problems. What you really want is to have peace in the midst of them. Oh, we think that we want God to fix our problems. We think that that's the answer. When we have a conflict, when we have a problem, when we have a situation, we think that the answer is for God to fix it, to resolve it, to make it go away. That's not the answer. Because there is just as much unrest in the heart of humans in a calm sea as in a tumultuous sea. The storm really doesn't matter. What matters is the peace of God within. And that's what the disciples really want. That's what you really want. What you really want, whether you realize it or not, is to have peace in the midst of all the storms of your life. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, He formed you, O Israel. Fear not. For I have calmed your storms? No, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will deliver you out of them? No. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do you hear the theme there? Do you hear God saying, I'm not going to put out the fires. 
But when you go through them, I will bring you through them. I won't calm all the storms, but I will be with you through them. I will give you the peace in the midst of the storm, which is what we really, really want and what we really need. Peace is the goal, not calmness. Next, when the Lord seems to be asleep or silent, He is often just awaiting the perfect moment to give reassurance of His presence and power. Did you pick up on that in the story? Jesus is asleep and the disciples just seem just desperate. They're just in desperation to wake up. They need Jesus to wake up. And it's as though Jesus is asleep until just the perfect moment. You know, if Jesus had quelled the storm at the first little puff of wind, as the first little storm cloud that peaked over the horizon, if Jesus had calmed the storm then, the disciples would have gained nothing for this. It's as though Jesus waits until the disciples are desperate because in their desperation is the only place in which they'll hear Him, the only place in which they'll see Him. And it's as though Jesus waits until that moment. He's silent, He's asleep, but He's God. And God never sleeps. And He waits for that moment because that is the moment that He needs to come in order for the revealing of Himself to take root. Similar to how Jesus waits three days for Lazarus to die and be put into the tomb. Because Mary and Martha need that to happen in order for them to see and believe and truly understand that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In a similar way, He waits until this moment. And Jesus, I think, often does that in our life. I think He often just seems silent and absent and even indifferent. And it's not because He is silent or absent or indifferent. It's because He's waiting. He's waiting for the storm to crash the the water over into the boat of our life, for us to reach that point, for us to say, Jesus, we're desperate. Do you not care? We're about to die. We're about to drown. In which Jesus says, okay, now you're ready to see me. When Pastor Andrew Davis preaches this passage, he uses an illustration for this point. The lyrics of a song, and I can think of no better illustration, so I'm going to take his and I'm going to use it. This is a song most of us know. By casting crowns, I will praise you in the storm. Listen to these lyrics. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again, I say, Amen. And it's still raining. Well, as the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain. I'm with you. As your mercy falls, I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. I'll praise you in this storm. I will lift my hands for you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in the storm. I remember when I stumbled in the wind, you heard my cry to you and raised me up again. But my strength is almost gone. How can I carry on if I can't find you? I lift my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
And the song continues from there. I know of no better illustration of the God who intentionally appears to be quiet and asleep until we are ready to see and ready to hear. Now, one final application very quickly is this. The strong man is foreshadowing the day when the sea and its storms are no more. All through the Old Testament, the sea represents the rule of evil and the chaos of evil. But then this metaphorical theme of the sea shows up once again in the Revelation. In fact, all through the Revelation, about six or eight times in the book of the Revelation, it shows up again. And we read in the book of the Revelation, from exa- for example, from chapter 4, verse 6, before the, throne was, for before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass. So now the sea, which represents chaos and evil, is now glass. Or we read in places like 21 and verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So we see again and again in the Revelation, either the sea is no more, or the sea is now glass, or the sea has given up its dead. And all that is to say that the strong man will one day put a permanent end to the storms. And this is a foreshadowing of this. This life, and this is the final thing for us to hear this morning, This life, therefore, is the only chance you will ever have to trust God in a storm. When this life is over, you will never for eternity have another chance to trust God in the storm because there will be no more storms. This is the life, this is the opportunity, this is the chance that we have to learn of Him, to see Him, and to trust Him when the rain is still falling. 